Hello everyone, I'm Sean Reynolds from Sportsnet, and that guy right there, right there, that's Ken Weave from Sportsnet, my partner in crime. Together we are Kenny and Rennie, and this is the Kenny and Rennie weekly long-form show where we dig a little deeper into characters in the sports industry, um, and we got a good one for you this week. Uh, my fellow Hockey Night in Canada host, host extraordinary young phenom, Kyle Bukoskis is going to join us in about five minutes or so, and we're going to get Brock McGillis on the show after that to talk some of the most important and pressing issues in the hockey world. Uh, it's going to be a fun, great show. It's already been a really busy day. I just hopped off the radio uh, in Toronto. I was doing CJOB earlier on with Jim. Before that, I've had a couple different meetings. You and I always working behind the scenes on Kenny and Rennie, which is fun to do, Ken. Uh, but I love to be busy. It kind of gets the heart rate going. That's what it feels like what today is. Uh, how's your day going? Tremendous. Uh, just had Dan Schulman in the background, a uh, little bit of spring training baseball as I did my uh, research for both the show and the game here this evening. So uh, I'm going to be joining Kelly and company at 4.15. So, uh, yeah, fun day here. we got another interesting game on the horizon uh, as the Jets, uh, they're going to try to do something else they haven't done in quite a long time. They uh, they were able to quiet one of the narratives, winning three in a row for the first time since early January. But now's their chance to win four in a row for the first time since October. So we'll see if they can get that done against a, a very good Toronto Maple Leafs hockey club. Well, so it's the interesting part about this. I just came off Toronto radio and I hadn't seen a ton of what the, they were talking about. But uh, the guys there said they'd listened to Sheldon Keefe quite a bit and they've never really heard him as fired up as he is heading into this game. We all know what happened last time the Winnipeg Jets and the Toronto Maple Leafs played. It's the infamous game that Logan Stanley left the ice with his arms up in the air, the helmet uh, in his hands, the victory call, as they called it, in, in the dressing room after that. Uh, Jets walking away with a victory um, and very much celebrating it, not being afraid to celebrate it, which seems to have really rubbed Toronto the wrong way. Um, if Toronto is coming into this game saying that, you know, they're looking for retribution or they're fired up, I personally think they are playing right into the hands of the Winnipeg Jets. Do you think any different, Ken? No, uh, I do think that uh, this is going to be an interesting game. I think it'll be a highly intense game, but I mean, I wrote about this in my column this morning. I mean, that posted last night. I mean, we always in the media make more about this, but it's interesting because um, the Leafs saw this as a personal attack in some ways against, uh, you know, uh, being pushed around, right? I mean, that's one of the things that, you know, the Leafs have their own issues in terms of trying to make it past the first round for the first time since 2004. But, you know, one thing the you know, analysts and fans and whoever else uh, are making out uh, in this situation is, I mean, this was an attack, and we talked about it last night on the Kenny and Rennie show, where, I mean, Austin Matthews, his cross-check that resulted in a suspension, you could probably directly relate that back to when he got into, you know, he was uh, horse-collared by Pierre-Luc Dubois and ended up getting a penalty anyway, even though he didn't push back. So uh, I'm, I'm fascinated to see how this goes. I mean, could the temperature be on the rise in this game? Absolutely. There's going to be emotion in it, but the Jets cannot afford to be spending time in the penalty box chasing after Jason Spezza for his knee to the head of Neil Pionk. Nor, I mean, the Leafs have a little bit of... Uh, latitude when it comes to the standings but let's not get ourselves Sean the Leafs don't want to end up in a wild card spot it's tough enough in their division to be where they're going to be at no matter who they face they don't want to end up in a wild card position and have a parade to the penalty box all night but at the same time uh, folks better have their heads up in this game uh, this evening because uh, some folks will be trying to finish all checks as legally as possible but 
Uh, I think it'll be a fun game. And again, Pierre-Luc Dubois loves being in getting under the skin of the opponent. He's been doing it all year long. He's second in penalties taken, but second in penalties drawn. The guy who leads the league in penalties drawn is Connor McDavid. So if you're anytime you're in a sentence and in a category with Connor McDavid, life's pretty good. So I would expect a lot of t- a lot of people to be on high alert tonight. And at the end of the day, the Jets need the two points a lot more than the Leafs do, and that has to be their primary focus. But that doesn't mean that we won't build the game up, <laughs> right? That's part no of doubt. the deal. No doubt. You know, timing is everything, and we've got uh, some great timing with our next guest, Kyle Bukoskis, who was working the game last night uh, between the Winnipeg Jets and the Buffalo Sabres. And I got to say, first off, Kyle, I want to thank you for wearing a hat because <laughs> you got the glorious hair going on. And every time, listen, this is this is standard. I don't know if you know this happens to your fellow colleagues, but every time I'm somewhere and I'm in like a sports net crowd or I'm doing a game, and if someone over the line says like, Sean, the hair is look, looking good tonight. The the caveat is always, I mean, it's no Kyle Bukowski's hair, but oh, but it's yeah. looking okay tonight. So I want to thank you for taking it easy on me, covering up the lid, and give, leaving me with some dignity here today. Thank you for that. No, hey, well, both you guys are looking terrific. I'm the one. I'm coming off a, a longer travel day here. Just got into Philadelphia, so um, I've got airport and airplane just all over me today. So. I'm. Uh, thank you guys for carrying me in the the good looks department. Good to be honest with you guys. <laughs> Sean even got a haircut today, knowing you were yeah. coming on, Kyle. It has I nothing to do with the fact he's got a national yeah, broadcast like, on man, Saturday. That's the flow is going there, Reynolds. You're no, I brought the that. A game. I thought not not today. You know how they say not today, say not today, Kyle. Because so. <laughs> anyway, um, I wanted to ask you this because you're a great guy to talk to about this because you've you know covered the lease quite a bit. I don't know how much you paid attention to that, but the point that Ken was making right before you came on the show, and we are going to dive more into you, but I just wanted to get your take on this. Um, we were talking on our Kenny and Rennie program last night that the Austin Matthews cross-check on, on Rasmus Dahlin, we thought that there was a little bit of the DNA of that jets Leafs game from earlier this year where Pierre-Luc Dubois kind of mugged Austin Matthews and then you know, Austin Matthews ends up getting a penalty, which, like, let's be honest, he probably shouldn't have. He just sat there and got mugged, and they sent the two of them to the box together. It kind of put it in the direction where, for the rest of the game, the Leafs were chasing retribution, trying to send a message, you don't do that. But in doing so, probably lost that game. And I think what we, you know, from an outsider's point of view of the Toronto Maple Leafs looked at it, saw was Austin Matthews needs to find a way to look after himself in those situations so that his team doesn't have to go running around losing a game in order to send that message. I was wondering if what you saw in that Rasmus Dahlian cross-check had a little bit of Pierre-Luc Dubois DNA, and if this is all kind of situations that have been building up to to maybe take Austin Matthews in a bit of a uh, different direction as a player. Uh, maybe. I will say, just going back to the cross-check on Dahlian, I felt at the time it probably had more to do with, because that was three days after the overtime incident against Arizona, right, where he felt the tug going up the ice and then no call and the Coyotes ended up scoring and he's losing his mind at the officials. We, we've never seen him really do as an NHL player. I felt it was more so on the heels of that. You know, it was a tough afternoon for Toronto, again, where they were losing to Buffalo. They were had the home crowd in front of them there in Hamilton, another big event that, that didn't go their way. And I just wondered if he eventually had enough in, in that moment and and decided to, to snap back. You know, I, I've got a lot of respect for how he's played and, and played through a lot of stuff in, in an era now where um, not a lot of players uh, have much incentive to do so because of the crackdown on the cross-checking and the hooking. And anytime you get a, a stick in the midsection area, 
hold up and the arms go up in the air and the referee is up like that and you go to the power play, he manages to bulldoze through a lot of the stuff. And I think that's a, a big reason why he's nowhere near the Connor McDavid's of the world in terms of, of penalties drawn because a lot of it just goes undetected because he just keeps moving. Um, so I know I, that that was a that game in in Winnipeg there that you're referring to. I think that was a pivotal moment uh, in a way for for Toronto. I know they lost that night, but just in terms of kind of understanding, let's make sure we're, we're taking care of, of our guys. But um, I will say, I think Matthew's done a, a pretty good job over over his career. Just like there isn't really, I don't know, there's ever really had a feeling of you know we got to make sure we're we're sticking up for for our guy here. Certainly, his teammates feel that way, but I believe he's he's done a job, a good job in looking after himself and also just carrying that that attitude of like I'm not even going to worry about it. I'm just going to go worry about scoring goals. So the rest of the group don't worry about it either. Um, I know it's going to be fun to watch tonight, though. I, I will say, I'm curious to see if there's usually, you know, we build it up and there's not a ton of, of spillover, right? Especially there's been a bit of gap between uh, between the meeting between the two teams. But knowing uh, how valuable this game is, Winnipeg, as you guys have, have talked about, uh, we'll see how, how high the emotions get. Yeah, it should be fun. I mean, obviously, 10 meetings last year. I think people, they got a little bit annoyed with one another last year in the in the North mm -hmm. Division. That might have had something to do with the spillover to December, but it's three months ago. I mean, these these teams have other priorities. But I mean, again, some guys are gonna you know whether you know if you're Wayne Simmons, you know Matthew Nyes is around the corner. You want to stay in the lineup. I'm sure Wayne Simmons is gonna uh, be into it and. Even Jason Spezza, all three of us have covered series with Jason Spezza. That reaction was so out of character for him. Uh, do you think that Neil Pionk's not going to be chasing him around the ice? He might try to line him up if he can, but he's not going to be saying, hey, hey, man, let's go to center ice and go toe-to-toe. -to -toe. But, I mean, anyways, I think it'll be a, a fun tilt as well. I mean, Kyle, what are you expecting from the game before we turn uh, turn our attention to you? Well, uh, I just wonder, like, I, you guys obviously know, know the Jets far far better than, than me, but... Um, you know, watching that game last night, I thought Hellebuck was really good. I thought Dubois was probably their their best player up front. Um, I don't know. I mean, I know they've played a, a lot of hockey. They seem like they were um, maybe a little low on on the energy side. Now, mind you, I mean, you're you're playing a, a Buffalo team that can just grind you and, and check the heck out of you. It wasn't a great atmosphere there at Key Bank last night because there's still not a big crowd coming to games there. Um, I'm wondering if just the atmosphere of being in Toronto and everything that goes with it, the Ontario guys that play there and what the, the Mark Scheifele line after they last played, right, in the room afterwards, is there anything better than beating the Leafs? Maybe that gets the, the energy going up um, a little more for, for the Jets. But um, I just wonder on, on a back-to-back, -back, I don't know what you guys thought about but last night in terms of, of how they played. Um, I, I just think this is, you know, as you mentioned, Kenny, this is – uh, a game for Toronto where they're still trying to keep pace in that Atlantic division where they seem to be shifting positions with each game between Tampa themselves and Boston. And, you know, we don't need to say much more about how important this game is for, for Winnipeg. Um, I just wonder how, how the Jets dig down and, and find, find the energy after last night on a back-to-back -back and given how busy things have, have been for them of late. Kyle, I want to switch gears and get uh, personally into you and just dig a little bit uh, deeper into you. One of the reasons I'm really excited about chatting with you here is we talk to a lot of, you know, Hockey Night in Canada uh, people on this show. Uh, a lot of them are, you know, we had John Shannon on recently. So their look uh, at, at Hockey Night in Canada is one that a lot of times is one that I wasn't privy to. I was too young for that. Well, now we get to be the old goats and talk to the young guy. And I'm really interested in your take on growing up. What drew you to the industry, to, to maybe, you know, hockey coverage? And, and what, what were the what were the things for someone for your generation that really drew you in and kind of influenced you uh, to start out of the gate? Hmm, really good question. Uh, so from the hockey night side of things, I mean, I was really fortunate, like growing up out west, living in the Pacific time zone, 
on Saturdays, it was perfect. And Sundays for football as well. Like getting that three hour head start where, yeah. you know, as you're seven, eight, nine years old playing novice hockey, you know, you had like your mid afternoon ice time slot as it usually was for us on a Saturday. And then you'd get home, get a bite to eat. And then usually you're settling into the pregame show at three 30 local time and, and the Toronto game at, at four o'clock. So you didn't have to wait long to, to get your fix of, of hockey on a Saturday. So it naturally just kind of lined up uh, for me as, as a fan and, and someone who loved playing the game and being able to watch. That's kind of how it started there. And then in terms of, of this industry, honestly, it was probably more on the, the highlight show side, right? Because I grew up in the era of, you know, every morning for us out West, it was Don Taylor on Sportsnet and then, you know, Jane Dan on the TSN side of things. I mean, those were the, the faces that I saw every morning uh, getting my highlights before jetting off to, to school. And so they just seemed like, man, it, it was like the most fun job there could possibly be. They had such a great way of, of going about it. It was funny. It was entertaining. And, and I loved, you know, I had a bit of a, an interest on the acting side of things too, as well. And, and taking drama classes in school and just the different bits that, that they love to do. I just, I, I ate all of that up. So that's where really the, the spark for me started for getting into to this business. And that's, so when I first got in, when people asked me, what do you want to do? I, I said, I wanted to read highlights on the desk. And so I just ended up over time after getting in with Sportsnet and as the years progressed, kind of just fell into the role I'm in now of, of working uh, ringside at, at hockey games. And so I'm, I'm thrilled that it's worked out the way it has. I love the ability to actually be at, at the event as, as you guys can both appreciate and witness what's going on. Um, but that's kind of, yeah, that's how it first started for me and, and why I was interested in the first place. Yeah, and for folks who don't know, you grew up in Campbell River, right? I mean, mm -hmm. what drew you to hockey initially, Kyle? What, what was it about the sport that kind of uh, got your attention? I, it's a good, I've thought about this honestly the last few years about like what was the first thing and I, and I can't quite remember like if there was one thing that, that kind of drew me to it. Like I remember like in kindergarten, I had buddies that played hockey and I thought, well, you know, they're doing that. It seemed like fun. I wanted to do it too. I remember um, for whatever reason, I think the first televised game that I can recall watching with my parents was probably maybe the the 2000 Stanley Cup final, um, Dallas and, and New Jersey, like for whatever reason that sticks out in, in my mind. Um, and we had a, a junior B hockey team in, in town too. I mean, it's still there now, uh, but the Campbell River Storm. And I remember when I, you know, being five years old and going to watch a game there and that felt like a, a very big deal. And they were a big deal when I was growing up. I mean, they came into the league in 97 and their first seven years of existence, they won the, the Island Championships all seven years. Like it was, it was a dynasty if there ever was one in, in junior B hockey circuits. Uh, it was incredible. Like it was a guaranteed win night when you'd go watch on, on Friday nights there at, at the local rink. So that was kind of really what, what got it started, I guess, as the years progressed. But in terms of like the first thing, I, I it's, man, it's, it's tough to, to put a finger on one thing. And we're, we're lucky. I mean, we had a big enough driveway where you can play driveway hockey as well and, and, uh, and fulfill your time that way when you got home from school. So I guess it was, it was all encompassing kind of as, at a young age for me. Kyle, this is the first I've heard about you uh, being uh, interested on the acting side of things. So the first person <laughs> it makes me think of is Huey, uh, who you used, to, you used to call games with yeah. before he retired. We had him on the show and fascinating stories about him. You know, I originally heard from his sister who told me that he was really interested in acting, went to university for that. Uh, he's another BC boy, although you're a coast boy, he's an interior boy. Um, but I'm wondering if there was a connection between you and him. You guys work together so much, but the, you know, the, the dramatic uh, uh, background for both of you, was there a connection that happened behind the scenes that we may have not been privy to? No, I, I don't know about on, on that sense. We never talked much about the, the acting side. And it really wasn't until later on uh, that, that I kind of learned that about uh, him as well. 
um because so much of the conversation was about other things about our lives i guess we just hadn't gotten to to that part yet but you know i remember him making uh like shakespearean references during his uh speech and uh you know being acknowledged for the hockey hall of fame when he went in a couple of years ago and telling the story there and i thought that was was really neat um but yeah I, we haven't talked a lot about you know our our, our love for for the stage and such uh growing up i mean i you know i guess at a certain point, you kind of think, oh, there'll be time for that. And now, you know, here we are where he's you know, happily retired and lived a really incredible career during his gig. And you're going, man, I wish I would have taken advantage of the, the opportunities I did have with him to have more conversations like that. But I guess I got to go visit him in the Okanagan here is, is what I'm, I'm realizing here, Sean, and, and uh, pick his brain a little bit more on that because, man, he was uh, got such a great gift of the, the gab and never seemed to have a crutch, right? Certain words that, you know, We'll, we'll lean on more often than not. I mean, he kept his vocabulary so fresh every night. And yeah, uh, yeah he's one of the good ones. Right on. Kyle, how'd you go about choosing a school when you, when you knew that journalism was what you wanted to pursue? And how did you, you know, we'd like to try to help maybe young aspiring journalists uh, figure out their path or, you know, at least to help them with some of the information. How did you choose on, on where to go? And Well, it was initially it was because it, it was a plan B. I, uh, I applied to uh, to Ryerson. I'd spoken to a few people and said, yep, that's the school you got to get in. And I thought, man, that's going to be so neat going to Toronto, living there for four years. It's kind of right in the media hub of Canada. And I sent my, I FedEx my application from Campbell River all the way to the, the big smoke and uh, waited to, to hear back. And at the same time, you know, my parents say, well, you should have a backup option, uh, another school that you apply to. And so I thought, um, I, I considered BCIT in Vancouver, but um, I was looking at, at SAIT's program in Calgary, the Southern Alberta Institute of Technology, and thought, you know, I loved Calgary. My few times visiting there at the time, I had family there, um, some cousins that I'd, you know, gotten along with really well. And I thought, well, if I, you know, I live there, I could hang out with them a little bit and have some, some relatives close by. And so I just sent an application in there as, as a backup. And so uh, I remember the day after school going online and, and checking the, the status of my application for Ryerson, and, and I was rejected. And I was like, Oh, okay. This is a tough start. And, uh, and then a couple weeks later, a letter comes in from Sate and I say, you've been rejected. I'm like, Oh my God, my career's ended before it's even started. I'm over two. And so I'm sitting there going, I have no idea where to go here. And my dad said, you know, like you just, you should send an email to, to the people at Sate and just thank them for your time. And, um, looking over your application package and just ask kind of where you missed the mark and just for some improvement going forward. And so, I swallowed my pride and, and did that. And they wrote back and they said, we actually didn't receive your application package. So I got lost somewhere in the mail. They said, well, we still have a couple slots open. And so I reapplied, resent it in and made sure it, it got there that time. And um, yeah, I was, I was lucky that at that point they said, okay, we've, we've got a spot for you. So that was a two-year program versus four. And again, I kind of, once I got over the whole, like, man, I, I was really holding out hope to get into to Ryerson and um, but the two years there, I mean, it was a total blessing in disguise, the hands-on work that we did um, over that time and the ability to kind of run our own newsroom on, on campus, um, stuff that I don't think, at least at the time, you had the opportunity to do it at Ryerson. I know they have now more of a sports media-driven program you can take there. It wasn't available when, when I was applying. Uh, it just ended up, it could not have worked out any better. I was just so in love with my, my two years there. It was a great time. 
I love that story. I love the resilience you showed uh, and the you know, kind of the kindness that you displayed in, in reaching out towards them. And clearly it paid off for you. I also love, I, I, I hate to say it because I went to Ryerson and I love my time there. But I, I and this isn't I, meant to be a shot. I, I, I didn't go to Ryerson. Uh, okay. I, <laughs> Kyle, I, I love that you didn't go to Ryerson and then you went to somewhere with a two-year program because it's really in the end added to the mythology of what you know surrounds you and your career i mean you are the ultimate young guy in in this in this career and the, the places that you've made it in a very short amount of time because you cut two years of school out you got in a little, two years a little bit faster but i i i, I want to get into the you know the what it was like for you to enter the industry as young as you did. I haven't had this conversation with you, but you know, we've got fellow uh, uh, colleagues, guys like Billy Duke, who I'm really good friends with has told me some Mm -hmm. funny stories that I think you told me a funny one about you being on the road with, you know, the Leafs general manager. I think it was Dave Nonis at the time. Uh, Maybe I'm butchering the story. Maybe I should just hand it over to you, but you know, a a collection of people and like, let's head out for a beer afterwards and you not being able to, can you give us some of the, (laughs) can you give us some of the kind of the entry, of you into the career and kind of not being at a, at a level uh, that people would fully expect from someone who was doing the job you were doing. Yeah, there was, uh, I'll, I'll go back to that story, but I mean, it was honestly, it was terrifying initially, like moving out to Toronto and, and starting it at Sportsnet. I was, I was 20 when pretty freshly turned 20 when I, I moved out uh, initially back in, in 2013. And so being all of a sudden at, you know, then the Air Canada Centre and mingling with, you know, people that you've watched on TV or, or heard of or, um, you know, read their work uh, growing up. It was like, it was totally overwhelming uh, at the time. And you're just like, hey, you're covering the NHL all of a sudden in, in the one of the biggest markets of, of the league. So that took some time to, to get used to, certainly. And then, yeah, I think just the, uh, <laughs> the reality of, of being a younger guy and, um, you know, maybe uh, some colleagues not quite used to you know, working with someone my age. Um, I remember like, when I first was told about, okay, we're going to move you to, to Ottawa now. Sean McKenzie was living there at the time. They were going to bring him back to Toronto, and I was going to take his spot in the nation's capital. And uh, Mike English, who was the news director at the time, and wanted me, and I appreciated him for doing this. He's like, I want you to go take a couple trips. This was just kind of towards the end of the hockey season. A couple trips out to Ottawa just to meet the people there, get acclimated, so that when you move in the summertime, it's not a total shock once uh, next season rolls around. So he booked me a, a rental car to drive up. Um, from from Toronto and then the day of I get there and and they're looking at my stuff and and they're saying well like you've got to be 21 to rent a a car and I was I was 20 at the time so I couldn't even but so I'm calling Mike he's like oh yeah I guess I haven't had to worry about this before so I got on the train Um, so that was one thing and then yeah my first ever road trip was a a Toronto game in in Tampa so I felt I was I won the jack bucket and gonna go down to to Florida for my first uh, ever big road trip with the the network and so after the game I guess the team stayed over that night and so Dave Nonis who was the GM at the time um, you know invited some of the the media members down to the the lobby bar there at uh, at the hotel the Marriott there by the arena and uh, James Myrtle sent me a note because I was just up in my room hanging out I didn't know what was you know kind of the post-game procedures and he said you know come on down Nonis is buying and so I sat down and the server came by and, and asked what I wanted. And I just kind of looked at what everyone else had. I was like, oh, I'll take one of those. And so it was a beer. And she was like, yeah, no problem. And she went and got it and brought it over to me. And later on the night, um, they, they were asking about me a little bit. And one of the questions was, well, well, how old are you? And without thinking, I just said, oh, I'm 20. 
and they were like, oh, wow, like you're, you're 20. Wow, that you're, you're very young. And then <laughs> later in the night, I realized I'm like, oh my God, like I just admitted that I've like illegally ordered a beer here, like in the state of Florida. Um, and he picked up the tab. I'm thinking, oh my God, like you imagine the next morning, like the headline in Toronto Sun, like Maple Leafs general manager purchases alcohol for minor while on you know, a road trip down in Florida. I'm like, oh, it's not all going to be over for me. Um, so thankfully that story uh, wasn't written, but I, I appreciated uh, Dave for, for buying me one there at the at the time. But no, yeah, no one made the connection when I said that I was 20 years old, that the fact that I, I shouldn't have been consuming what I was, but ended up being a, a, just a, a good, good laugh over time. So that was fun. Right on. Uh, Kyle, can you take us back? What was the interview process like uh, the first time you were connected with Sportsnet and, and what it was like when you when you got that job at such a young age? Um, well, I uh, so Mike English, who I mentioned earlier, is the news director back then. His uh, daughter was actually filling in on a Matley position running the communications department for the athletic program at, at State where I was going to school. So her and I were working together because she would assign, you know, She'd have to find people that wanted to do play-by-play or PA for you know the varsity basketball teams or volleyball and what have you because they would stream them as well you know for families that wanted to watch their their kids play that didn't live close by um, and so I did a lot of that as much as I could and that's how we got to know each other and then she mentioned to me you know about a few months before graduating that you know I, I don't know if I told you but my dad works for Sportsnet in Toronto. And uh, she said, you know, when I was back for reading break, I, I mentioned your, your name to him and kind of what you're doing. And he wanted to see some of your work. And so I had been working on a, a demo tape at the time because it was getting to be that point where you got to start applying for things with school almost being finished. And so I, I thought, wow, that would be like the coolest thing to have someone in his role just to provide any type of, of feedback for myself going forward. Um, so I sent the, the tape in and, and he wrote back and, and said some um, you know, constructive complimentary things. And and asked, you know, what's kind of the, the plan going forward? Uh, you know, he said, you understood you're, you're graduating in a few months. And so I said, yeah, I, nothing uh, at this point. Like, I've just been applying. I've talked to a couple different places and, and looking for potential opportunities. Like, I, I applied to a place in North Battleford. Like, I was doing my practicum out in, in Victoria, just a few hours south from where I grew up. And so uh, a couple of days after that, I, I get an email from, from Scott Moore. Of course, you know, you and I, or the three of us know, um, who was the president of Rogers Broadcasting at the time. And I, I didn't know him then, but uh, sent an email and then said, hey, I just got your, your demo reel passed on. And, um, you know, we want you to, to come out to Toronto for, for an interview and, and an audition. And so, um, you know, life got very real very quickly because, I mean, I hadn't even graduated post-secondary yet. And now I'm contemplating this, this opportunity to go out to, uh, to Toronto to, to try to land a job. So, um, in June, just after I actually had my official graduation ceremony at SATE, I flew out there, first time being in Toronto. And, um, you know, the next morning woke up and, and met Mike uh, at the hotel. And we walked over to the, the Rogers building there and um, took all that in and, and met some people. And, and that night did like a little in-studio audition where we had like three minutes of highlights to, to read through. And at that time, there was a brief period, like you guys know the CP24 channel in, in uh, Toronto, the all news channel. So City News launched what was kind of like uh, the, their attempt at their competitor to CP24. Like it was an all news, all day City News channel. And they needed people to provide like sports updates every half hour. And so they were trying to find bodies in our newsroom to be able to do that. So there was a number of kids, um, I say kids, like, you know, young adults um, that were in the roles of, you know, BAs or um, production assistants that wanted to get on air. 
and and they had an opportunity there to fill those those slots on the new city news station in in town so um that night i i thought going in i was just the only one auditioning but there was also seven other people that already worked at sportsnet that were taking their crack at, at doing it as well and um, actually the first guy that went that night was was jesse rubinoff who of course we see now uh monday to friday on on with tim and friends and i remember just watching him from the control room and like he nailed his audition i thought holy jesus like we're not in kansas anymore right like you go from <laughs> broadcasting program, a graduating class of 13, and you go there and I'm like, man, these these are where the kids come to, to play for keeps. And so I'm thinking it was a little bit overwhelming then going, I, I better be half decent when it comes my turn. And so I'm standing in the control room, Scott Moore standing in the control room, and um, he's walking out past me. And I'm, again, like a million thoughts are going through my head. And as he's walking past me, he goes, don't F it up, but like said it. And I'm like, Oh, like of all things to say it right now, that was the last thing I needed to hear, right? So um, I'm even more nervous than than I was before. And um, but anyway, I think it was he was trying to just you know break the tension a little bit there. So I, I do appreciate him doing that. And yeah, I went into the uh, the studio there and um, you know did my thing for for three or five minutes. I don't remember much of it. It was all such a blur at at the time. And uh, stuck around for a couple of days, had a couple interviews, and then over the summer just waited and see you know if they wanted to to hire me and what the plan was and um you know eventually kind of think late august they said okay we want to move you to to toronto and to have you start up with us and then at the end of september i headed out there and and started my my time with with sportsnet well i got to tell you kyle if you look at all the video of you doing those updates i'll be in the background of one of those i remember it was the first time i saw you i was meeting billy duke in the background mike english had flown me out as well and i remember you know i was impressed as, as you were with jesse rubinoff as you should have been um because he's phenomenal love him uh, on tim and friends um i was equally impressed with you and i was looking over you you may see me in the background with like my jaw hanging open in shock and awe being like to billy like who's this kid where does he get these skills from it was uh was that you, in the you, were you, were, you were impressive i was in the oh, background while you yeah. were shooting it so it was Interesting stuff. I, I want to get into to this because you talked about, you know, that moment where you go from, you know, being a young kid to doing this. And now you're around all these people you see on TV. You, you've had so many experiences, you know, you were integral to our uh, playoff broadcast in the bubble these last two years. Um, who are some of the people that you've met or interviewed or ran into that have really kind of been pinch me moments for you that, you know, kind of made you say, you know, once again, like you did before, we're not in Kansas anymore. <laughs> yeah. Um, I remember there was, uh, there was some event going on in, in Toronto, like shortly after I'd, I'd started at, at Sportsnet and we were covering, I can't remember what exactly it was for, but I remember like Joe Sackick was there and like him walking by, it was at the Sheridan hotel down in one of the ballrooms and like him walking by like 20 feet to my right or whatever. It was like, Whoa, like that's Joe Sackick. Um, and certainly, you know, like interviewing someone like Sidney Crosby for the first time again, for me, like I was still in my early teens when he broke into the league and even before then all the hype around him. So you kind of grew up watching him and then to kind of be covering um, the games that, that he was involved in was, was a really neat thing. Um, yeah, there's been, there's been a few, I think just uh, like the last couple of years being able to just be there on site when the Stanley cup is, is being handed out. Like uh, once I kind of got into this, uh, I thought that was, that was a bucket list moment to, to be able to do so to just to see that up person uh, up, up close in person and just the emotion on everyone's faces uh, you know getting to a moment like that that's that's really cool 
Um, so it's it's stuff like that, like just the the different scenes that you know we come across in, in this business, whether it's you know a raucous playoff game. The one thing I haven't been able to do is actually see a game in in Winnipeg, and I would love to do it, whether it's regular season or, or playoffs. But you know, like when you get into a into a place where you're looking around from the press box or wherever you're watching from, and you're thinking like, man, this is this is a pretty cool environment we're in right now. Like stuff like that is is still even to this day, as much as it was when I first started, really really special. Kyle, what's the key to conducting a successful interview? <laughs> I should be asking you guys here. I, just, <laughs> um, I guess listening, I think, is one part. And uh, that's one thing that I still got to remind myself of because you're constantly thinking of the next question because you don't want mm -hmm. your mind to go blank. Um, so listening to your, your guest, I think, is, is a big one. And, um, you know, trying to find things. I guess it's, it's also knowing your, your subject is, as well and, and finding something that um, is, is topical in terms of a line of questioning that, that needs to be asked at a, at a given moment, but also trying to find things that, you know, maybe will get more out of, out of your guest um, than, than you otherwise would. And so that can vary from, from player to player, person to person. Um, but that's kind of always the, the thing that, you, that I, I at least try to, to keep in mind because, you know, you only have them for a, a finite period of, of time and, um, you know, you want to make it worth it for, for everyone involved, for, for the, the person you're talking to, for the viewer watching at home. Um, you just you want to get something out of it that, that isn't full of, of cliches, which can be much easier said than done in, in our racket, as you guys know. But um, that's kind of what you always try to I always try to keep, keep in mind. In light of the Will Smith, Chris Rock thing, uh, I think the saying you've always got a plan until you get punched in the mouth is, uh, is a good saying these days. Um, it wasn't an actual punch in the mouth, but I look back on the interview that you had with Brad Marchand in the playoffs a couple of years back. And yeah. as, uh, as a host, it's an extremely challenging situation to find yourself in uh, in essentially a you know somewhat hostile territory in the interview. Um, and, and I'm interested in your take looking back on that. I think you handled that extremely well. Um, what were you thinking in that moment? What did you take away from that interaction that uh, that you carry forward with you in the, your career? Um, yeah, I think just that is that, you know, in terms of what I take away from it was, um, you know, you just, you've got to be ready because sometimes they, they don't go anywhere close to, to what you expect. And when that happens, like, how do you, how do you react? Um, I mean, there was a whole kind of, there's a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes in, in that series that, um, I mean, I, I don't want to bother going through all of it here to, today, but, um, and not, nothing bad or anything. Like it was just a lot of just minutiae stuff. Um, and anyway, so we get to that point where like game six, Boston wins in Columbus, they eliminate the Blue Jackets going on to the third round. And, um, and so we get to do, you know, that interview and, and he agreed to, to do it. And, you know, you kind of, I'm sure both of you guys do the same. You, you read body language, right? When you initially go before starting an interview and I can tell early on, I'm like, ah, this may not go as well as we would hope. And, and then, you know, it happened. And like, honestly, I, I never really had an issue with it at, at the time. The only thing that kind of made me uncomfortable is that, you know, it kind of blew up into a bit of a story for 24 hours. And so I never got into this business to be part of the story. I, I, I got into it to tell stories. So that was a, a little bit, you know, just different for me to, to go through. But in terms of like the interview itself, like I held no ill will towards Brad. Like he felt that um, I think he was just at, at, at a point where he'd had enough with what, you know, the media was, was saying about him. Cause if you remember like that interview happens and then he goes into the dressing room afterwards and like all the other media that interviewed him after the game in the dressing room, I mean, he did the exact same thing to, to them, right? Like he, I think mm -hmm. he just had his fill um, because there was an incident earlier in the series, you know, late in game three in Columbus, um, you know, there was a, a punch that kind of went undetected that, that he 
uh, gave, I think, Scott Harrington at the time. And there was a big uproar in terms of, you know, here's typical Brad Marchand and he should be suspended and all that. And I just think he had had enough of the narrative that was was being painted of him. And that probably fueled, you know, what he, he chose to do in, in that night. Um, and so I just look back at it. I, I and jokingly, jokingly, I look back and I'm like, well, you know, um, you know, some people started to know who I was after that night. So it wasn't all a, a bad thing. It was, you know, um, but it, I should say now it was, um, Funny story, a couple weeks ago, the night of the, or the day of the trade deadline, Boston was playing in, in Montreal um, that night, and I was working the game, uh, the hometown hockey broadcast. And so uh, Marshawn and I hadn't done an interview since, since then, right? Like just because, I mean, we've been in a pandemic. Last season was the Canadian division. We didn't do any Boston games. It just hasn't happened yet. And so we get to the end of that game. It goes into overtime. He had scored earlier that game. And in my mind, I'm kind of thinking like, oh, this, I think this is going to be the night here. Like I'm going, I, I've got a feeling he's going to score here in, in overtime. And, uh, and he does, right? Like 30 some seconds in. So I'm like, all right, here we go. And so I go over to the Bruins Hall. I said, yeah, let's, let's grab Marshawn here for, for the postgame interview. And the PR was, was on board with it. And uh, come walking over and said, hey, how are you? How's it going? Uh, it was all good making a little bit of small talk, right? It's just as the, the crew gets the camera set up and then, and then the light goes out and I'm like, Oh, and so we're like, well, there's some kind of light just over here. If we move back two feet, can we do that? Or, yeah, I think we can do that. And then the light comes back on. Okay. Lights back. Great. All right. So go back to where we were and uh, just about ready to go. And now a uh, camera operator is like, ah, camera's gone down. Now the camera will fire. I'm like, <laughs> what? I've never had like the double whammy of like no light. And now the camera is, is now a problem. So we're standing there and like, Sean, you know, like if, and it's nobody's fault, right? Sometimes technically just stuff doesn't work when you need it yeah. when it comes to production trucks. So you're standing there with the player, they're waiting and it's agony because you know, yeah. you don't want them to have to wait any longer than they need to. So I'm like trying to, again, just like make small talk and I'll give him credit. He was incredibly, incredibly patient with it all. Like there was a lot of other players around the league that would have been like, all right, like, come on, let's go. Um, but he was totally good with it. And uh, at some point, uh, Scott Carruthers, our producer, said in my ear, like, we're going to give it 10, 50 more seconds. If the camera doesn't fire, like, we've, we've got to gas the interview because we don't want to keep him all night. And so I relay that, that to him. I was like, we're just going to give it a few more seconds. And he's like, well, he goes, I could, you know, take my skates off and come back. Like, it's, it's really no problem. And then eventually we decided we had to, to nix it because we didn't know how long it was going to be before the, the camera fired up. So um, I guess the world wasn't ready for, for another interview between the two. <laughs> But uh, I'd never had that before. We're like, just the, the stuff didn't work to the point where we had to um, cancel the interview completely. But uh, it was certainly, I thought I was chuckling afterwards going, man, oh man, of all things. Well, I, I would suggest that the way that you handled it the last time earned you the respect that was given back to you in that moment and, and uh, well-deserved. Um, before, before we let you go, I have to bring this up because we were playing it today. My kids were laughing their butts off. You did a TikTok video uh, about Cadbury uh, Mini. <laughs> that people would go out and check this out. It's hilarious. You touched my wife's soul in a very deep way. I've never been able to in my life before. She connected uh -oh. with that video so much. Um, I just, uh, I, I think it's hilarious. Uh, I, I just wanted to get your thoughts quickly on the idea of, you know, you've built your audience through Hockey Night in Canada. Um, just the way that you use social media, your, your uh, Ron Burgundy uh, spinoff videos, all that kind of stuff is great. I just wanted to get your philosophy on that because I know there's a lot of people who are watching how you do what you do and are trying to emulate you. And I just wanted to get your kind of philosophy on how you use that going forward in your career to add to Hockey Night, which is kind of, that's not traditionally in that space. 
Right, right. Well, I, I will say, I mean, I'm, I'm nowhere near, I think, where I, I should be in terms of using it. Like I look at people um, like Sean McKenzie, who does a really good job on, on TikTok and some of the other colleagues we have, uh, Sean and Ken, that use you know Instagram and stuff really, really well. I'm not nearly as active on that as I think I, I would like to be. And I think part of it is, I don't know if I just don't put enough time towards it, but I, I will say that the, my one approach is like, I, I'll post something or do something if, if, I, if an idea comes to me. Like there isn't that same like, well, I've got to do something today or it's got to be every so often that I, I do something. It's just kind of whenever an idea pops into my head, like doing a fun thing with Cadbury mini eggs, like I just, okay, I, that idea pops in, let's, let's do it. And so the, the, uh, the amount of interaction and engagement and posting stuff can be few and far between for, for me. And I, I, something I continually try to, to work on. Um, but that's just kind of the, the way I approach it and try to try to have some fun. And I know Twitter is probably a little more for like the newsy hockey type stuff. And then, you know, between Insta or, or TikTok, I think it, it serves as a, a great place to have a little more fun and, and show off some some personality. So, yeah, I, I'm certainly not uh, wouldn't be one that, that people should look at as, as an example, because I think there's there's others that do it far, far greater than than I do. Um, but but I do uh, appreciate the the chance to kind of play around on, on there and, and just see how, how creative we can, we can get. Well, I'll say Kyle, I call it quality over quantity. The stuff that you do put up are absolute home runs. You're phenomenal at it. Uh, as you are uh, on hockey night in Canada, it's been a lot of fun watching your career. One of the things that kind of sucks about our job is that, you know, because we're both hosts, we don't cross each other's paths very often, but the times that we have about a ton of fun with you uh, in the bubble in Edmonton, Yes. Uh, and in Montreal last year as well. Uh, it's always great to catch up with you, and I'm hoping to do so in the future. Uh, keep doing what you do. Uh, you are a shooting star, and you're just going higher and higher and higher. It's fun to watch, and it's great. To, it's it's great to call you my colleague. Oh uh, well, uh, you've blown me away with those kind words, Sean. So I, I appreciate you. Thank you for for looking after me, you guys, and having me on. And and Ken, thanks for for your help and in, in getting me prepared for the game yesterday as well here. So. Uh, thank you both and, and keep up the great work. And yeah, hopefully before too long, we'll, we'll be able to, to get together the three of us. It's been too long. Excellent stuff. Thank you, Kyle. Hey, man. Thank you. Kyle. Right. See you guys. All right. We're going to move from Kyle. We're going to bring Brock McGillis straight in here. Uh, someone we're extremely excited to have on the program, uh, an advocate for equality in sports. Um, Brock, I always think it like this. If you are becoming a full-time advocate and that's what you do, you're basically taking and putting others before yourself full-time in your life. That can be, you know, a draining proposition. I wonder what it is uh, that you see in yourself that allows you to live a life that is basically, you know, causes that mean something to you that I'm sure forward your life. Uh, but, you know, to work in the service of others um, what about you allows you to be able to do that and make that a full-time thing for you? Well, um, before I answer that, I got to let you know, I had, I, my curls were flowing earlier <laughs> and I threw, I saw how proud you were at the start of the show that you had the best hair today. So I threw a hat on just for you. You know what? It, I, I like Claire, people. I like people to glow down so I can glow up. That's what I want. How big of that? It it goes, but it it kind of like dives right into your question about putting others. (laughs) There you go. You've elevated me. Thank you so much. This is great. I love this. This couldn't have started off any better, Brock. I I did though. I I I had the curls were flowing, and I get DMs like if 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 I have curls like. Even Winnipeg Jets fans have DM me about my curls. So, like, 
Like, I'm just going to put it out there. I, I did this for you. Um, so, but yeah, no, it's, um, I, I don't know if I ever intended to do this. I intended the hat, but not the work. Um, <laughs> I, I, I sort of fell into it, if I'm being honest with you. I was... I came out to empower myself and to not let anyone use my sexuality against me. And nobody else was really doing it. <laughs> so it sort of just, you know, especially in the, in the hockey space, and, and it sort of just became people were coming to me. People were coming to me from all over the world with their struggle. And then I started getting calls to speak, and more people started reaching out. And before I knew it, I was traveling the world as a speaker. I have a series like a digital TV series with RuPaul's Drag Race. I um, do a ton of media because like there was, there's not a lot of other voices in the space. So, um, and then when it's something that's so near and dear to your heart, like my lived experiences and couple that with other people struggling. It's like, how do you not, how do you not just keep going? And it comes with a ton of crap. Like it's not pleasant. Um, you know, I, I mean, if I'm critical of the league or a team or something and met with death threats and uh, harassment and anything you can think of, but if it makes the game a little bit safer and, and helps one person feel better in the space each time, then you just keep going. What's been the most rewarding part of that journey, Brock? Um, being able to help people come out, um, uh, both in the sport and, and like, I've been, I've been grateful that I've been able to talk to, you know, I worked with Luke Prokop before Luke came out. I worked with Yannick Duplessis before he came out. I, I've was, uh, when, uh, Scott MacArthur came out, he and I talked a bunch first, uh, Bane Penninger reached out to me before he came out and, and, and being able to be a resource and, and help them, you know, guide them through what, what to expect and also, you know, watch them thrive. It's pretty damn awesome. And then beyond that, just in society, like I got kids coming. I, I, I was working with a kid for about a month, just DM me on Instagram who you know, um, was scared his family was going to find out. And then one day they saw a dating app. His sister saw a dating app on his iPad and realized he was gay and then outed him to his family. And now he's sitting there with nobody. His family isn't inclusive or supportive and he's sitting there with no one. Um, being able to help that kid. And then when he, he said to me, he's like, you're like my gay fairy godfather. I'm like, did you just call me a fairy? <laughs> but in in reality, it's like, kind of cool you know I, I had dinner with uh, a media executive a couple of weeks ago and he goes you know he goes you're gonna die one day and I said well thanks and <laughs> and he goes and all those people you've talked to especially the kids are going to be parents and grandparents and somebody in their life is gonna come up and they're gonna remember what you told them and what you've shared with them when they were younger. And it might help that kid 
He's like, your, your legacy is going to live on past your life. And I think knowing that now, and like, I went like, oh my, like, it's sort of like daunting and surreal to hear, but it's like cool at the same time. And, and knowing things like that, it's like, like what an honor. So I think it's all a culmination of pride, essentially. I, I, I don't know if I can say there's one specific moment, but all of it together just makes me like happy. Brock, I would imagine that for for you, before you came out, for the people that you're talking about who come out and use you as a resource that, you know, it, it can feel like you're, you know, drowning in an ocean. And then someone like you becomes that that island, that solid ground that they, they can reach to to try and find some stability. I know that it's clear that you take very seriously your ability to provide that for other people. Was there anyone whether you knew them or whether you saw them on TV or whether there was someone out there that kind of presented a little bit of that solid ground for you on your journey before you came out? There were people prior to coming out. Um, I, uh, I, there was a, a radio show on Sirius XM called Derek and Romaine. There used to be a, a channel called OutQ and it was an LGBTQ plus channel. And when I was closeted and playing hockey, I think I was at Concordia at the time. I was done playing pro. I was at Concordia. And I would drive around at night and listen to this radio show. And it was sort of my space. It sort of gave me a community because people would call in. It was a very interactive show. And I, I would listen to it. I'd just drive around every night and listen to it. And I finally reached out to them and kind of told them who I was. And uh, I became friends with them. And they supported me and they kind of helped me through it. And Romaine's a really interesting story. Her her best friend growing up was Matthew Shepard. And Matthew Shepard was like the, the first uh, really high profile hate crime where he was murdered for being gay in Wyoming. And it was like the Westboro Baptist Church was there protesting at his funeral because they, they were charging the two people as hate crime as opposed to solely like manslaughter. And um, she, they, they used, uh, they created Matthew's Angels, and it was these wings to block out uh, the protesters from the media because it was like international, like news. And it became like a, it's called the Laramie Project. It became uh, a play and also a, a movie. And Christina Ricci plays her in the movie, and um, she became an international activist and spoke all over the world and she kind of was there for me and Derek was the co-host. He was there for me. And then around the same time, Brendan Burke came out and I was living in Montreal and I was watching, I think it was a Leafs Habs game. And uh, I was sitting at home and it was between periods. I wasn't really paying attention and hear this kid talking about following in his father's footsteps, me in the NHL's GM. And then he goes, and I'm gay. And my head whipped around and stared at the TV and I was in awe, I was shocked. And uh, as soon as the interview was done, I, I reached out to him and we became friends. And Brendan and I would talk almost every day. And he became a friend. It was such a relief to have somebody who understood what it was like to be in hockey and also be gay and the duality that comes with that. And, and to have that person and I think it was good for him too, because he had gay friends and he had his family that was really immersed in hockey. But having that intersection of the two 
really helped. So Brendan and I would talk almost every day. And then one day he sent me a message and it said, I can't wait for the day that you're out to your family like I am to mine. And I ignored him. And it wasn't because I didn't think my family would be inclusive or supportive. I knew they would, but I was afraid that they'd become more sensitive to the behaviors and language in hockey. And they were so immersed in hockey that they would stand up to it and out me. Mm. So I ignored Brendan's message. And uh, two days later, he passed away. That ended up being the last thing he ever said to me. And he's the reason why I came out to my family and to my friends. And But when I came out publicly, there was no one in the moment. There was nobody there to kind of guide me the way I could like kind of help Luke and them realize like you're going to get 10,000 plus messages tomorrow. Like it's, you know what I mean? It's going to be people all over the world coming to you with their struggle, coming to you with support, coming to you with everything. Um, I didn't have that. And, and it was daunting, but I'm, I'm grateful for the people that were there to support me prior to, and I'm grateful that I'm able to support people now. Touched on Luke. I mean, those skates that Bauer created, how great are those Brock? Oh, it's awesome. I, I think it's so wonderful. I, I think, you know, he's, he's thriving and it's great to see. You talked about Brendan. I mean, obviously the story for your loss there. I mean, what's it meant to have Brian as a, as a resource and as a advocate and trying to speak out and support as often as, as he can, given his stature in the game itself. My dad reminds me a lot of Brian Burke. They're both named Brian. Uh, they're both truculent and they both have <laughs> massive heads. <laughs> and, and, and I'm not exaggerating on any of the three. Um, uh, I remember uh, a few years ago, I was having drinks with Brian and my partner was there and, and my partner whispered to me, this guy reminds me of your dad. <laughs> and I just laughed and very much so. And I remember when I told my dad, one of the first things he said is, he goes, Brian Burke doesn't care. Why do you think I would? You know, and I, I think it's important because there's a whole generation of parents who see Brian Burke as such a, a prominent figure and such a, a hyper masculine man to to um to have him just so vocal about his support of his child has to make other people critically analyze how they treat their kids who are struggling the same way or who are this you know uh, contemplating their sexuality or whatever or coming out and so to me, like, I, I think it matters. I think it's so critical. I, I think there's more and it, it actually makes me sad. I, I know of at least 20 or 30 players in the NHL who have gay siblings. Um, there's management coaches, uh, front office folks, media members who have uh, queer children or siblings or relatives. And it's like, if you watch him do it and it hasn't impacted his career, mm. Why can't we get the rest of you? Um, I, I, I really like uh, Brian Burke as a character in all this, because for all the reasons that you said, you know, he's hyper masculine, you know, kind of that old school hockey guy, crusty guy, but he's, he's an ally and he's a massive ally. Um, I wonder if in your path that you've taken since, 
Are there any people that you've bumped into who have surprised you as allies, people that you would have looked at and thought, you know, that's not someone I'm going to be able to go to for support, but but has surprised you with the, with their support uh, because maybe in the sporting space, you know, it's maybe machismo first and and the caring about this kind of stuff in the background. Um, w- one of the main people I think of is Curtis Gabriel. And Curtis has become a very vocal ally. Uh, I remember when I first, when Curtis um, got like kind of rose to prominence in that space uh, because he was the first player to use pride tape in a game and score a goal or something. And it was in, I believe it was 2019. And I, I DM'd him after the game because he was, blowing up all over social media and you know the the community was putting him on a pedestal like the queer community and i was like you put tape on his stick like what's the big deal <laughs> you know like to me I, i'm not a huge fan of those things like I, I i i love pride tape i think it's important but i'm i i think performative things are just kind of like i want substance and depth um so I reached out to him and, and I said, Hey, do you want to jump on a call and talk? And he goes, okay. And, and, um, I thought he was full of it. Like, I thought it was all like sort of BS. Like he used it for a nice reason. He had a, a, a friend in his life that was experiencing homophobia. And I'm like, but I, I said, you know, you're this prominent figure. You're in the NHL. You're getting a ton of visibility. What, how are you going to use your platform now? And he said, I don't know. I just want to play in the NHL. And I said, gotcha. Cool. And I said, well, good luck. You know, we followed each other on socials. And then about a year later, I see him. And all of a sudden, he's posting things on Instagram. And he's tweeting. And he's he's really being vocal. And I went, whoa. So I reached out to him again. I said, you ready to talk now? And he said, yeah. And I think so many people came to him and he saw the struggle and oppression that exists within even just our culture and hockey, let alone society, that he said, I got to do more. And I was like, cool. Like that to me is cool. Like that's a guy that has no real ties to the community, doesn't need to do this and just chooses to. That's somebody I can go to any day of the week and whether it's to vent or to talk or, or if he needs anything like that, that's, he's become one of my best friends. Um, just through that, just because he's like, no, there's right and wrong and this is right. And I'm going to use my voice and my platform. And, you know, does he always get it perfect? No, nobody does. But does he try? Absolutely. And I respect the hell out of him. Rock, you talk about the platform. One of the many things that you do is speak with junior hockey teams about changing the hockey culture. I mean, what's it like to have the opportunity to try and shape the change, the necessary changes that need to be made on those fronts so that it can reach the NHL level eventually also? I love it. I think, um, I believe it or not, I think major junior and junior hockey is the most influential um, space in the sport. Mm. I think they have more influence than any than Connor McDavid. And I know I sound crazy saying that, so I'll explain it a little bit. Um, I equate Connor McDavid as Brad Pitt, 
right? Like he's sitting in his home. He's not out on the street with people. He's not engaged on a daily basis with people. That junior hockey player is um, going to school with people their age. They're um, they're going to parties. They're they're you know fans look at them the same way and treat them the same way they do an NHL player. Kids look up to them the same way they do, but they're going to the minor hockey practices. They're doing all this stuff. They're immersed in the community. I equate them to being like Instagram influencers or YouTubers. They're famous but accessible. So to me, the way they talk, walk, dress, and act is then mimicked by society in these communities across the country, across North America. So uh, to me, if we can get them to shift behaviors and language and even just break the barriers to conformity, like you both know, do a hockey interview. You can probably answer the questions for them before they even show up. You know, like really, like they're going to say the same five catchphrases like each time pucks in deep play for the you know we got to go harder tonight we got to finish our checks we got to blah 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 blah. if we can get them to break those barriers conformity and become individuals and be themselves and not act the same way talk the same way dress the same way walk the same way act the same way we're going to become a more inclusive place because people who can't conform or won't conform will feel like they can be involved and those kids are going to be happier because they're going to get to be themselves and because they're themselves they don't have to tease or harass people who don't conform because ultimately most of them are just upset that they can i do a breakout now where i tell them i say you're allowed to talk about four things in a locker room women partying sports and video games tell me something you every team calls themselves a family or brothers or some analogy like that Tell me something you wouldn't typically tell a teammate that you enjoy. And this is after I've humanized my stuff and break, broken down conformity and different things with them and educated them. I have like major junior players talk about like loving to write poetry, like tough guys. I have players talking about, you know, like one kid said, if I don't make the NHL, I want to be a zoologist. A first year player jumped out of his seat and said, I love animal documentaries. Mm-hmm. I was so excited. Coach stood up and said, I drag my wife to Broadway musicals every summer. And major junior coach saying that is just wild to me. I went to another team and the first thing the kid put his hand up and goes, I like lacrosse. I'm like, well, that's hockey without skates. Um, <laughs> I'm like, you know, give me, let's go a little deeper here. And, but then the coach stood up and said, I sing in a band. So then another player stood up and said, I play the piano. And then other, it started to, there, there was a snowball effect and we broke down those barriers where, okay, you like more things than this. Hmm. Why can't you in these spaces? Like it's, I, it's like the Dougie Hamilton effect. Hmm. Like Dougie gets ripped on cause he likes museums and reading books and learning about culture. And instead of drinking with the boys on the road, you know, and it's like, well, no, you can, you, you, sh- this, this should be celebrated. So I, I love doing it. I just think it's fun. You've inspired me right now to share with the audience that I love baking and decorating cakes, Brock. So that, there you that. go. That's, that's something in a different space that so, uh, we don't talk to you about this. Sean, you were talking about TikTok earlier. I think you should start doing a, a baking TikTok. 
Uh, you know what? I, I threw out, I, I made a, an Eeyore cake for my daughter for her last birthday. And it was the first one that I, I'd ever shared on Instagram. And it was amazing, the, the response that you got from that, right? But it's like, Lovely. I've loved baking since I was 12 years old. It's one of those things where you hear hockey players go out and you, the ones that make it go out and they do that on their own. And I played lots of hockey, but I also took the time off the ice to go inside and make giant oatmeal raisin cookies when I had the time. I love that, but, but that's yeah. wonderful, right? And we all have those things. <clears throat> we all do, and why, why can't we embrace that in this culture? Why do we have to do, like adhere to the norms that are so rigid then people don't feel like they can be a part? Yeah. So interesting, in the early 2000s, I was covering the Manitoba Moose, and I think I went to see the Barber of Seville in Houston, and a couple of the Moose players were there. A couple of veteran guys, I mean, cultured guys, and we kind of gave it the old, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? And then we're like, oh, it's good that we're all here. You know, it was, I found that really interesting also. And so again, this isn't something that's new. It's just something now that you, know, you try to bring it to light, you know, 20 years later, I think it's, there are some strides being made, but I mean, it just reinforces how many more need to be taken as, as we move forward here. And if, and if we're closeted about things we enjoy, imagine trying to be gay. So I wanted to ask you this question, uh, because I think that this is something important. I think that this is maybe it can be a disconnect between people who aren't going through this and people who are. Can you describe to me what it's like to be closeted, how it interferes with your interactions with people? It, interact, it interferes with the per pursuit of your goals. Um, give me an idea what it feels like to be in that situation and the, and the pressures in trying to get out. I knew I was gay when I was six. The first time I asked my parents if I was gay, I was six years old. I didn't think about it for a long time because hockey and life when I was a child. Um, then when I got to my teens, I started to really, you know, think about it. And I, I kept hearing language in locker rooms, homophobic language, heterosexist language. And, and I was like, and, and by that point, you're playing AAA and then getting into junior hockey. Like your identity, if you're a hockey player in Canada, your identity is completely wrapped around the sport. Like you see parents of friends, they're like, how's hockey? You go to Christmas dinner with a bunch of relatives, how's hockey? Go to a wedding, all anyone asks you about is hockey. So it's like, well, I can't be gay and play hockey, so I can't be gay because my life is hockey. So I suppress it. Um, I did women. I'm ashamed to admit this today, but I was a womanizer and I adhered to the stereotypical norms that exist within the culture of a hockey bro. You know, womanizing, party hard, do all those things that are, you know, the stereotype, the cliche. I adhered to that because I felt like I had to. Um, I hated myself. I don't want to trigger anyone that might listen to this, but I wanted to die. Um, through junior hockey, I tried to die by suicide on more occasions than I can count. Um, from 15 years old until I retired in my late 20s, I had a season-ending injury every year. I don't think that is a fluke or a coincidence that I was struggling so much emotionally and psychologically. And I was constantly, I was severely depressed. I was suicidal. 
I drank from 18 to 23. I drank every day. Um, I was rated really high in the OHL dropped, had injuries dropped to the sixth round. I was rated really, I was on the NHL draft list. My draft year, I was supposed to be a pick and I'm a six out of the eight months with injury. I was still getting calls the night before the draft saying teams are going to pick me. Didn't get drafted. The next year at 19 was uh, negotiating a contract with the team. And two days before the show camp, I tore my MCL. It was just constant. And I was not sleeping, drinking, depressed. Um, and then finally, I was 23. I was living in Europe. And I said, okay, you got to figure out who you are. It's two things were going to happen. One, um, if I didn't figure this out, I was going to lose my hockey career. And two, most importantly, I was probably going to end up dead. So I came back from that season and I went on a date with a guy and I ended up dating him for three years. And initially I thought, brilliant, like my life's going to get back on track. I've accepted that I'm gay. So like everything's going to get back on track, but it got worse. Because now, now I wasn't suppressing it, I was hiding it. And not only was I hiding myself, I was hiding somebody else. Mm. So it made it even more difficult to, you know, navigate the space. Um, ultimately, that relationship ended and, and I was in a really dark place. It was not easy. It, it, struggling with my sexuality in this space, in hockey, um, probably... Uh, like, well, it ruined my hockey career. Um, and most importantly, it probably ripped away 10, 15 years of my life. And, you know, it, it, it's something that I took a lot of time to get over. I resented the game uh, right away when I stopped playing. And I did for a few years. And then after that, it was like, okay, how do you deal with this, you know, 10, 15 years of trauma. And, and working through that was a lot of work. And now, when, and it was funny, when I came out, now other people are coming to you with theirs. And it was like I was reliving mine all over again because there's no, like what I do, there's no handbook. There's no guidebook on how to like support people and be an advocate, activist, whatever. Like there's, there, there's like you're just kind of thrust into it and and i had to take a step back because i was getting really depressed initially um because all these stories made me go back to that space and then finally through therapy and everything else worked through that and was able to detach and still be support which you know i'm that was years ago well it's only been six years so not that long ago but to the point where it's like it doesn't impact me the way it used to, but it's not easy. And it wasn't easy. And it was a dark time. I, I've like, it was, uh, it was tough. It's not a hard, it's not a life I would suggest to anyone. <laughs> um, I personally today wouldn't suggest for, uh, an LGBTQ plus youth to join hockey as in boys hockey. Um, because I don't think it's a space yet that is inclusive or supportive enough. And, and maybe in theory and, and thought people are, and I genuinely believe that 95% of the population is, 
but the language and behaviors haven't caught up to it totally yet to the point where they will feel okay every day. And it's a real shame because I think it could be such a powerful tool to empower people and make people feel good the way it does for some. We talked about this with Sheldon Kennedy a few weeks ago, Brock. I mean, it would have been easy for you to turn your back on the sport, but we're among the many that are thankful that that you did not. Uh, Sean, I'll, I'll turn it over to you, but I got to, I got to, do you have anything else or? I know I, I wanted to ask you, Brock, because you've brought up language a number of times. Clearly, you know, I've, I've read some of, of your goals that you're trying to achieve here. And language seems to be really, really central uh, to, to uh, what you believe is going to lead to change in this. <clears throat> Why is that? Uh, and explain uh, to those who may be using language that they are, you know, I'm sure a lot of people use language as a weapon. I think some people unknowingly do. Um, why is language, uh, why does it create such a barrier and why is it so important for, for us to address this? So I, I'll start with like, I do believe that a lot of people um, aren't necessarily aware of the impact, you know, and I think that's critical to realize. But, um, and I think it's because of the insularity of our culture that people aren't aware of the impact of their words and what it does. But I mean, I look at myself, I, I wasn't, I was a hockey player playing junior hockey, like life's good, partying, having a good time. Everyone thinks I have this great life. And because of the language I just heard, like casual language in locker rooms amongst my friends, everything else made me think I was bad or wrong. Made me feel like I couldn't be myself. Made me want to die every single day. So I look from my perspective and then when I stopped playing, I started working with athletes and I was running hockey businesses up in, I'm originally from Sudbury, Ontario. So I'm, you know, uh, yeah, it's uh, almost as cold as Winnipeg. Um, so I, I can sympathize with you. You feel our pain. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, two places I don't want to be in the middle of winter, but gorgeous in the summer. Um, so I started working with athletes and, uh, I was, I was out in my private life, but I wasn't out publicly. And I came to find out, um, through a hockey mom who wanted to set me up on a date that all my athletes knew I was gay. And it was about three or four years of running these businesses. I was working about a hundred players a day. And initially I thought about coming out to them. And then I thought, no, you know what? I'm going to do a little sociology experiment and observe their behaviors. And I started to notice that any time they said something homophobic, they would freeze up and apologize to me. And I'd sort of shrug and, you know, just go on with things and, and kind of let it go a little bit. Um, and I thought, well, cool. They're starting to observe their behaviors or recognizing it and they're apologizing. That's a really good step. I thought, or maybe they just do it to me because they like me and I present as this masculine jock guy and I, warm up and play basketball with them and I jump on the ice with them and I'll hit them and you know like like it's full tilt all the time and I thought you know what if they're going to school or what if they're going to the rink or different places and using that language and treating others that way I had no idea until one day I wasn't there and I had a sprint coach working with some athletes on a track and at the end of a two-hour workout he told them they had 10 more sprints to do and uh, a younger kid he was 15 or 16 looked at the sprint coach and said, this is so gay. I can't believe you're making us do this. And one of my older players who was in the OHL looked at him and said, 
we don't say that here. Give me 50 push-ups. And he said, you're right. And he got down to 50 push-ups. And that became something my athletes adopted amongst themselves. Anytime somebody would say something homophobic and it's a product of the environment and the words we use in this culture, they would do push-ups. And because these kids, junior players, whatnot, are influencers, they took it to their peers at school. They took it to their friends. They took it to their teammates. They took it all over. And kids that I didn't even know were doing push-ups. This one, the younger player, one of his teammates was on FaceTime with his girlfriend one night. These are two people I've never met. And uh, she says to him, let's hang out. And he goes, no, I can't have practice. And she says, that's okay. You never want to hang out with me. And he looked at her and said, give me 50 push-ups right now or we're breaking up. And they both dropped down on FaceTime and did 50 push-ups. And I started to think, cool, like this is a shift and this can happen in this culture. And, and I think it's, I think people are genuinely good by nature. And I also think hockey people tend to rally. We see different incidents, whether it's cancer, whether it was the tragedy in Humboldt, whether it's, you know, different things in the culture, people rally. And if we teach them that these are things to rally around, and the impact it's having on people, they will probably rally. And 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 we can humanize it for them. They, they, they're in these bubbles. We need to humanize it. And then when we do and teach them this, they're going to be more likely to rally and stop doing that. I, Cole, Cole Perfetti, great kid. I talked to Saginaw um, last year uh, at the end of the season. And he, well, they had no season, but at the end of their year, um, he said to me, he goes, Brock, I'm paying this to the NHL. He just flat out said that to me. He goes, thank you for doing this. I'm paying this to the NHL. I'm going to remember this and take this throughout my career. But they don't even know up to that point. And and there's somebody who's going, nope, I'm going to rally. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm going to now take this with me. And we can like we can do that here. We just got to be like uh, my whole thing is just let me in the door. I don't care if it's an NHL team or you know a U fourteen team. Let me in the door, and and we can make it happen. And 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 we can create shifts in this culture. And 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 the whole point, the language, and and whether it's language or attitudes or anything else, because body language is a type of language. You know what I mean? And this all kind of plays into it. We can make this a space that is so great for everybody. I had this uh, trans boy come to me two years ago, and he was cutting himself regularly. And he was really struggling with body dysmorphia and different issues. And then he's, he found bodybuilding and weightlifting. And he started going to the gym when he felt down. And that became a tool of empowerment, a tool to feel good. And I started thinking, shouldn't that be hockey? Shouldn't that be hockey in this culture? And it's currently not, but it could be. Um, Brock, I just have to apologize for Ken. He actually had to step That's out okay. for something. I, I assumed. I'm not. I'm not done with this conversation. There's there's more that I want to ask you here. Yeah. Um, so when I hear you talk, it becomes clear to me that there are are gay men, gay women in sports that that they still feel the choices. Either I hide my, it's the choice between exposing my sexuality or, or my career. Um, and, and so 
the numbers tell us, and you're going to know way more about this than I will clearly, but I've, I've done in, in the limited research I've done in these areas, I know that, you know, if you extrapolate what we know in society, there's plenty of gay men in professional sports right now. We just don't see them because they don't come out. And, and I wonder, we've made progress in so many different areas of society. Why is sports and athletics, especially male athletics, why is that such a tough nut to crack? Um, I think there's a number of reasons for that. I think, um, like, first and foremost, like, the, the newer studies are showing closer to 23% of the population identifies LGBTQ+. That's a big number. Huge. And then on top of that, a friend of mine finished med school a couple of years ago, and they learned that 40 to 50% of millennials experiment with the same sex. And Gen Z is even higher. That's wild. Yeah. You know what I mean? And and it doesn't surprise me. I mean, like, like people are going to experiment. They're going to figure out who they are. And, and we're curious by nature. Um, we're, from a very young age, we're assumed to be straight. Sport is ran by straight people predominantly, uh, especially team sport. Um, everyone in the room comes like so most of the kids are coming from heterosexual households so that's what we talk about we teach kids about heterosexuality not even intentionally just like oh do you have a girlfriend or you know like we say to little kids like oh do you have a girlfriend yet you know who's your girlfriend in your class stuff like that um so when they get into sport there's heterosexism where everyone is assumed to be straight. And that goes right up to the top. Like, like there's groups, you know, like uh, teams will have charity things called WAGs, um, WAGs for cancer or something. Yeah. And it's wives and girlfriends. Yeah. Yeah. Like that, that alone is not creating a space for anyone but a straight person. You know what I mean? Because if, if you're gay and potentially bi, you aren't included in that. Your partner doesn't have a space there. So you feel like, well, that's not for me. So from a very young age, we do that. And then, and then on top of that, the way we put each other down in sports is we say that because sports are typically hyper-masculine. We say that a man is up here or a straight tough man is up here and we feminize someone or we use homophobic language to put them down. Mm-hmm. So we're putting them down here. So we're saying they're less than. And, and that creates this. Um, so, so everyone's assumed to be straight. And we ingrain it in people from a young age that they're supposed to be straight. And then after that, we put them down by calling them homophobic or sexist. I don't know, they're not all slurs, but comments. And then it's like, okay, so... How do we expect people to feel like they can come out in this space? Just, just the language alone, just the attitudes alone, just, just the way we assume people to be, or pu- even just putting assumptions on people. How do we expect them to, be, to feel comfortable, that 23%, to be themselves? It's, it's nearly impossible. So I don't want to sound ignorant on this, and I may, no. but I'm going to risk it because I think it's important. Um, Ask away. It would, 
I, I don't know what the numbers are, but it, I would suggest it seems obvious to me that women's sports are far more accepting of, of people with different sexuality than men's sports are. And I wonder, are there easy, easy built-in mechanisms within women's sports that, that men's sports would just have to look to, to, to just follow the lessons, follow blueprints to make it easier to accept this in men's sports? See, I, I think the issue, the, the thing that makes it inclusive in women's sport in terms of like societal is the issue in men's. Um, I, I think two things. Number one, um, there's a stereotype that a lesbian has to be macho, butch. So therefore she plays sport. Oh, so it's almost, it's almost more fitting. For them yeah, to be lesbian because in it's, it's hyper masculine that's why okay. i think you see a lot of women today in sport feminizing themselves you see women's hockey players full makeup mm -hmm. make sure they have long hair all these things to feminize themselves because they're presumed to be masculinized because they play sport and then the other thing is um a lot of the time men run women's sports still mm. And it's socially acceptable to men for two women to be together. It's in some cases is a fantasy. So um, I, I think within the context of the space itself, the locker room, uh, women are, is there still homophobia and whatnot? Yeah, of course, and transphobia. But is it far more inclusive and supportive? Yeah, because I mean, just the fact that women are oppressed in general, <laughs> you know, makes it so that they, they are going to be more open to someone else or, or to other forms of oppression and, and be welcoming and supportive. Um, but I think the hypermasculinity of sport and the patriarchy, if we're going to go that deep, mm -hmm. sort of play into why it's more inclusive and supportive. And I think just in general, women are more empathetic than men and, and, you know, um, I think we need to develop empathy in men's sport. I think we need to develop, and, and these are things that I think women are really strong at, uh, critical thinking skills in men's sport. Um, I think that also comes from allowing people to be individuals and not tell them how to dress, how to walk, how to talk. If they can learn a little more individuality, they're gonna learn critical thinking skills to be able to do things for themselves or think for themselves which would ultimately help them because they're smart, you know, and then they can critically analyze. Um, and then beyond that, I think we just need to normalize a shift in language and behaviors. And, and these are like first level steps here. Um, you know, uh, the, the, the language in a women's locker room is very different than the language in a men's locker room. What women are comfortable talking about is very different. They can break down those barriers of conformity. Sometimes, granted, they do adhere to a lot of the norms of men's hockey, but they, they can break it down in a sense as well because they can talk about things other than those norms. Um, so the, we, we can do that. I think it, it comes from those things I was talking about, just the conformity, the language, um, embracing individuality. And I think that alone will, will be the catalyst to seeing the shift happen 
Um, and I think we've seen it more on the ice where we're celebrating more players for skill as opposed to just pucks in deep and whatnot. You know, so there's more individuality in the way players play the game today. Um, but if we brought that off the ice, and I mean, it would grow the sport beyond anything. Yeah. You know, like just from a fandom. Like, why why is basketball so popular? You know, they're allowed to be individuals. They dress the way they want. They come into, you know, the rink the way they want. They're, they're themselves. They say what they want to say. Yeah. yeah. You know, and... and um, we could do that in this sport. And I think that that is, in my opinion, the, the catalyst to shifting it. And I think women's sport has done a better job of that. Okay. Um, we should close it off there. I'm so appreciative of the time that, that you've given us here today. Uh, Ken wanted me to make sure that I thanked you uh, from him. Um, I got to say, we had Sheldon Kennedy on this program a couple weeks ago. Uh, I'll say the same thing that, to you that I said to him. I mean, it's clear and evident that you're saving lives doing what you're doing. Um, it means so much to us for you to come on and uh, uh, help us understand your process and the process of the people that you're helping. Uh, and I know that you were trying to elevate me by covering up the hair, but you left enough of those curls to tease that I think we can tell you got a good mane underneath there. And yeah, so, I, so uh, you know, I appreciate what you were trying to do, but I still think you may have the best hair in the program here today. So, Well, I'm, I'm honored. I'm honored. Uh, and thank you for having me. And literally anytime, I appreciate the conversation and I, I appreciate giving me your platform to amplify it. Yeah, we would love to have you back at another point. Uh, thank you so much, Brock. Um, and until next time, we really appreciate you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Um, that was great, as usual. Uh, once again, our chat room, uh, I know we don't dive into, we don't bring your comments up the way we do on our regular show because we won't don't want to distract our guests. But one of the things that I love during these heavy shows that we have, which I think are so important and we love having these conversations. Um, I just think it's something else when people like Rob Somerville hop on here and share their experiences. Rob saying that he's faced a lot of rhetoric and ridicule throughout his life from the time he was in kindergarten throughout school, continuing to his adult life and his working life, stereotyping people is wrong. No doubt he's right about that. Um, I just got to say, I absolutely love uh, that people feel, uh, I, I take it as, as a massive, massive compliment that uh, people in our chat room feel comfortable sharing this kind of stuff with us. And I'm so proud of our chat room to see the support th that comes, uh, that you're offering each other in these situations. It means a ton to me. It means a ton to Ken as well. Uh, thank you so much, everybody, for joining us here today and taking the time with us. Um, and we look forward to seeing all of you tonight after a really big Jets game as they take on the Toronto Maple Police. I think it's going to be a big one. I think there could be a little bit of fireworks uh regardless there's going to be a lot to talk about after the game so thank you so much everybody we will see you tonight after the lease game